you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Thanks for being with us today. Let's dive right in on this fabulous Friday. You know, 2021 is starting to look a lot like 2003. Maybe that's because the word on Governor Gavin Newsom's lips is recall. Looks like it's going on the ballot, so we're ready to go. And my tone is only this. It's one of intense focus, energy. We will fight it. We'll defeat it. At the same time, it's not going to keep me from focusing on my job. Looks like we'll talk about that and so much more on State of Affairs. That's our weekly peek at politics in the Golden State. With me today are Carla Marinucci, senior writer for Politico's California Playbook, and Jack Pitney, Roy P. Crocker, professor of American politics at Claremont McKenna College. Hey, y'all. Hey, Austin. So good to be back with both of you. So organizers of the Newsom recall effort said more than 2 million signatures were turned in this week. Only 1.5 million are needed. So if enough are verified, this could be headed to the ballots. And all of this, of course, is driven by unhappiness with how Newsom has handled the lockdown. But I mean, what really got the ball rolling, if we're going to be real about it, was him getting caught at the fancy Napa restaurant, the French Laundry. Who can forget the Twitter rage. Pretty expensive meal in retrospect, I am sure. Jack Pitney, I got to ask, do you think we'd still be here if it was not for that dinner? Maybe not quite as quickly, but yeah, we'd eventually get to the point of a recall. On the hmm. one hand, all the pandemic restrictions have frustrated a lot of Californians, especially when they compare us to states like uh, Florida, which opened up much sooner. On the other hand, despite all the restrictions, we still got hit pretty hard by the pandemic. The death toll in California alone is almost equal to the total American death toll in the Vietnam War, wow. uh, to put it into perspective. So Newsom's getting slammed from both sides and those who say he did too much and others who say he didn't do enough to stop the spread. And that's a tough position to be in. Well, you know, Newsom has been pretty silent about the issue for the past several months. I get it. He maybe doesn't want his opponents to see him sweat. But he broke his silence on it this week by pinning the blame, get this, on far-right politics. You have someone who's a member, proud member of the three percenters, an alt-right militia group, others that are devout conspiracy theorists that believe in QAnon, another that literally supports the insurrection, support it on January 6th. So he's got a conspiracy theory about conspiracy theorists. Carla, does that hold any weight? <laughs> well, you know, Austin, um, Newsom and his team have come out of the box this week branding this as a Republican recall with a capital R, you know, an effort to tie it to former President Trump as well to, as to these anti-maskers, uh, anti-vax extremists, some of the more unsavory elements of 
you know, the right wing, far right, uh, but also the recall movement. It is true that Orrin Heatley, the founder of the recall, did a post on, on Facebook in 2019 that suggested microchipping undocumented immigrants, mm. uh, saying that should be explored because it worked for animal control. Um, he wow. since tried to walk that back. He doesn't say says he doesn't support that, but the, the damage has been done. And, and we should note that the original recall petition, uh, which they filed in February 2020 last year, never mentions COVID or, or the pandemic as a rationale. It does mention a lot of red meat conservative issues like high taxes, gun control, etc. But as Jack mentioned, I mean, the timing has changed. Uh, the, the issue has changed on this movement and the focus is all now about uh, Newsom's handling of the pandemic. And, and I got to add that some people think that tying this to extremist movements with such force may be risky. Remember Hillary's comment about deplorables mm. uh, came back to bite her in the end. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But uh, that's the, that's the approach they're going with. It's very clear from this week. You know, I will tell you as a frequent frequent reader of Fox News, because you got to stay informed on everything that is still coming back to bite all these years later. So I certainly can see how that is exactly, the case. Right. Uh, Carla, is there any prevailing political wisdom, though, on how well Newsom handled the crises here in California? I mean, Jack did mention the still very high and very tragic death tolls. But specifically, is there any objective analysis yet for whether he did well or not? Well, you know, Newsom, you know, made a place in history. Uh, he put the country's first statewide stay at home under order, uh, you know, on the books a year ago, last March, uh, this week, as a matter of fact. And then there were those regional stay at home orders in December um, that angered a lot of people, you know, different areas like Orange County really rankled and shutting down beaches. So uh, a lot of people felt that controlled the pandemic in the beginning, but Newsom himself uh, in a decision to kind of reopen the economy in January appeared to take by surprise, many people in his own party, they said it was too soon. He, California goes, went through a resurgence in November. The point has been made that California is bigger than, say, seven states with the most populous state, 40 million people. It is a huge challenge to try and get this pandemic under control. And he is saying that with almost 11 million vaccines done in California, and most of them, he says, uh, the, the um, limits will be off as of around May. Most people will be able to get it by then. Uh, the, the bottom line is he's going to be judged on the schools more than anything else as we go to, through this pandemic. Despite his push to open you know, six uh, schools for 6 million California public school kids, it's been slow in California compared to states like Massachusetts, where the governor has already ordered all the kids to go back in full, full instruction. So right now, with about 80 percent of the California school kids, according to one study, still enrolled in districts that are only offering distance learning. Um, many think that that may be the bottom line of how Newsom is judged coming up if that number doesn't improve. Uh, he could have problems going toward this recall. You know, just looking at it from the outside, though, it definitely seems like a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of position that he's in. And predictably, Newsom is getting raked over the coals for the recent round of reopenings. One Republican assemblyman even tweeted, quote, 
could have done months ago. Why now? Two million reasons why. And I'll also put out there, I really like to explore ideas of different timelines. I'm a big Rick and Morty fan, so if there are any out there, this is, <laughs> this is that moment. But Jack, do you have any reason to believe that another governor, say in a different timeline, say his 2018 Republican opponent, John Cox, do you have any reason to believe that he could have balanced the California economy and public health better? Yeah, well, we're in the realm of counterfactuals there. It's, it's really hard to tell. Uh, one thing is pretty clear, though. Any Republican governor would have had a very hard time with pushback from the legislature, especially somebody like John Cox, uh, who doesn't have any government experience at all. If you want to see what happens when you put uh, an inexperienced rich guy in the driver's seat, well, just look at the federal government in 2020, which is not a very encouraging example. Now, would a Republican who actually had some governing experience have done better? Maybe, maybe. But in fact, we're never going to know. Well, Jack, you know voters well, and you were also well-versed in the last time we had a gubernatorial recall back in 2003. So what are some of the factors that we should be watching for to see if this is going to be successful or not? Well, uh, the question is, who is going to be able to steer the conversation and define the choice? 2003, it was all Arnold all the time. Not only was he a celebrity, but he was also a pretty smart guy who knew enough about policy to be a plausible candidate. This time, there's no Schwarzenegger. Uh, the uh, people on the Republican side thinking about running largely unknown to the general public and that potentially gives Newsom uh, an edge in setting the terms of the debate. Of course, as Carla said, it all comes back to the real world. Are the schools opening? Are the COVID numbers coming down? Is the economy coming back? That's what's really going to settle this. It's a change people can see and feel. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. We're talking California politics with Claremont McKenna's Jack Pitney and Politico's Carla Marinucci. And Carla, there's another California Democrat facing some tough questions right about now, and that's Senator Dianne Feinstein. But those questions really boil down to this this big one of will she stay or will she <laughs> go? Can you tell us about the latest rumors that are tied to her husband? Well, her husband, Richard Blum, Austin, has been a top fundraiser for Joe Biden. Um, he and Dianne Feinstein raised a, about $100,000 to help him. Uh, Blum has been eyeing a posts, uh, ambassador posts, which are often given out to those big donors. We've, we've heard China, but also Europe recently. And uh, that has raised questions about if he gets that post, does Dianne Feinstein, who's the oldest member of the U.S. Senate at 87, does she leave and uh, go off with him? Uh, the fact is that most people think they, you know, she spent most of her time in Washington, but say if he had a, an ambassador post in Europe, well, they're not that many hours apart anyway. But the bottom line is, she has said no. She is not going to retire. Uh, absolutely not. She doesn't plan on leaving her post or her job before 2024 when she's up for election. And you know, all this comes as Blum. Uh, you know, is is the scrutiny is on Feinstein over. Uh, her mental capacities right now. There's been a couple of damaging stories in the New Yorker and Politico. And she kind of has dodged questions about her sharpness in recent years. But remember, she did give up that leadership post on the Judiciary Committee. And she's facing a lot of pressure from progressives to retire. But both she and Governor Newsom say that's not going to happen. You know, Jack, there are so many aspects to this whole situation that we're following in the news. But 
One important thing to keep in mind, though, is that Feinstein is one of the wealthiest members of Congress. So for her and her husband, it's not about money at this point, but taking a broader view. And this is really important for everybody to think about. You've worked with a lot of politicians in your career. What do you think compels a person to keep working at this really stressful job when they could also go and enjoy their time, their mobility, their fruits of their labor while they can? If you're in politics, United States senator is an absolute dream job. Uh, You have an enormous staff to take care of your every need. I say this, I have been a Senate staffer. I've been one of those (laughs) taking care of the senator's needs. Uh, uh, People defer to you. People open doors for you. And when it comes to the big decisions, uh, if you're president or if you're a governor, You're making the life or death decisions and everything is on you. When you're a senator, you're one of 100. And if things go south, you vote for a war that doesn't work out. Hey, you can blame everybody else. Uh, So I can understand why why she wants to uh, to stay in the Senate as as long as humanly possible. If if I were a senator, that's what I'd want to do. Like I said, there are just so many aspects I want to get to. But Carla, really briefly, why do you think she's staying at it? Well, you know, having covered her for decades up here in San Francisco, um, you know, politicians aren't like you and me, and certainly Dianne Feinstein isn't. I mean, this is a woman who has survived some of the most harrowing harrowing moments in politics, Mm -hmm. the assassination of George Moscone. She's survived a recall. She survived an unsuccessful run to be governor. And then becoming senator in the year of the woman, 1992. Uh, You know, whatever else you think of her, she's a fighter. And it's pretty clear she's going to fight until the very end, Austin. (laughs) Yeah, no, that definitely sounds like her. You know what? There's so much more we want to get to here because I know that, you know, Javier Becerra, he's now headed to Washington to head up the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Carla, if I gave you 10 seconds, could you tell me who's maybe top of the list for Newsom replacing his job here? I think we have to say Adam Schiff, hugely popular with the base, a massive fundraiser, a brilliant attorney. A lot of people think a fighter who could come in there and help Gavin Newsom from day one, especially as he heads towards his recall, Austin. We're going to watch that one because that announcement could come down any time. Carla Marinucci, senior writer of Politico's California Playbook, and Jack Pitney, Roy P. Crocker, professor of American politics at Claremont McKenna College. It is always a pleasure, you two. Good to be with you. you, Austin. Thanks. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. 
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Exactly one year ago today, Governor Gavin Newsom issued a statewide shelter-in-place order and our world's turned upside down. To reflect on the past year and think about where we're headed, we partnered with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture to commission sermons from local faith leaders. Today, we hear from Vanessa Gomez-Brake. She's Associate Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California, and her reflection is titled, Despite All These Things. In January of 2020, Taal Volcano in the Philippines began to erupt. At the time, I thought that would be the scariest thing my family would ever have to endure. Of course, I was wrong. My family watched as red flames and black smoke rose overhead, sweeping away the ash as it covered their homes and the whole landscape. My family was able to put distance between themselves and the volcano. Yes, the fish would rise to the top of the lake, being suffocated by ash. Even their livestock would perish on the farm. But everyone got out of town safely taking refuge at my mother's house just a 20-minute drive away. But in 2020, the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and racial injustice would take a bigger toll on our family. Last April, my cousin Tina was leaving an Asian grocery store near her home in Arizona. She didn't notice a man in the parking lot but he took notice of her. As she got into her car, he climbed into his. As she pulled out of the parking lot, so did he. He followed her, and when the light turned red, he hopped out of his car and bashed in her brake lights. She screamed, she drove away as fast as possible, putting as much distance between her and her perpetrator this crime would go unreported. One has to wonder at what cost does this self-effacement come with when violence against our being is diminished such that it's unworthy of attention, attention from the authorities, or even attention from our families. I listened as my family convinced me that they were okay that it was no big deal, and that the lights had already been fixed on the car by the next day. What does one do with this grief, though, of being a target because one is Asian? It's not that bad, is what my mom used to say. Just as she would describe her experience of immigrating to Arizona in the early 1970s, She doesn't talk about it, the discrimination she faced, because it's not a big deal. Yet I know the truth that Asians are perpetual foreigners in this country, never truly achieving status as Americans. We're always on the outside. When COVID-19 arrived on the West Coast, Two of my aunts were working full-time in an elder home care facility. Have you heard the numbers? 
Although Filipino nurses make up just 4% of the nursing workforce, they constitute one-third of all nursing deaths. In May, one of my aunts, who is over 60 years old, she visited an urgent care center for a cough that was getting worse. With an hour of her visit, she was rushed to the nearest hospital, having had a positive COVID test. The next day, she was no longer responding to text messages or calls, no longer able to use her phone, as she consented to being on a ventilator. She spent two weeks on that ventilator, and she survived. But the health effects on her are lingering to this day. Natural disasters, hate crimes, systematic violence, and political unrest. 2020 was a year for confronting broken systems and embracing family and friends from afar. 2020 offered a lesson on giving into chaos, acknowledging the things we have no control over, and making the best with the realms of influence we do have. As a secular humanist, I believe in good, and that it is my responsibility to bring about good in my one and only lifetime. Humanists tend to pray with their hands and feet, not to a higher power, but by being of service, wherever their values can be put into action. So although I could no longer physically go to work during the pandemic, I could go to the corner to help pack items at the local food pantry. Although I could not see an end to police violence in our nation, I could show up to a Black Lives Matter protest with my secular Sangha members, showing our support and elevating the voices and messages of Black leaders. There is no way to make sense of this chaos of this time, but a year into the pandemic lockdown, I have found strength in deepening my relationships with my family and friends, loved ones that sustain me through the grief of this time. I found hope in the creativity of human beings who despite all the things, like the loss of loved ones, the loss of jobs, the loss of homes, despite all these things, are generating new ways of being and thriving. And while I may not believe in a God or a higher power, I do believe in humans and their ability to problem solve creatively. Just as the world's scientists were racing to create a vaccine, just as Black Lives Matters managed to capture the heart and the attention of the world. And yes, also, all those home bakers and gardeners becoming experts in sourdough cultures or growing their own greens. It is this human ability to create and conquer that continues to bring me hope. That was Vanessa Gomez Brake with her sermon, Despite All These Things. You can read her text online at crcc.usc.edu. You'll see a report pinned to that main page titled, Bridges Over Troubled Waters.
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. You're back with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. Enrollment at some Southern California community colleges has dropped nearly 25%, but one local college has kept nearly all its students. You got my attention. KPCC's Adolfo Guzman-Lopez reports on how it's pulling that off. One year ago, Alexis Thomas Hutchins found herself about to graduate from Carson High School without her strongest supporter. My aunt that basically took care of me and that I see as a second mother passed away along with another aunt. The future looked uncertain. She'd missed university application deadlines. Her aunt would have been the one to encourage her to find a way over the obstacle. In May, she got a call from a counselor at Los Angeles City College. She'd signed up to attend, and the counselor encouraged her to enroll and take advantage of onboarding classes, financial aid, and other support. I felt amazing. I, I felt like every tear that I sh- I shed it when I found out I couldn't get to my university because I couldn't meet the requirements was pushed aside. The counselor's unique customer service style approach was part of an innovative outreach program two years in the making. L.A. City College President Mary Gallagher created it with knowledge from two business degrees and personal experience from a college job she held years ago in retail at a customer service desk. Sometimes the the person who's complaining the loudest just needs to be heard. They just need some help. They're afraid nobody will help them. This applies to students, too. The danger, she said, is that students will walk away from higher education entirely. Her improvements included telephone and online help centers, as well as support classes to teach time management, study skills, and self-care. L.A. City College counselors became recruiters, like at big universities, and fanned out in person to dozens of local high schools. The efforts were headquartered in the Campus Welcome Center. It went from looking like a computer lab to looking more of like an Apple store. That's Alan Andreasian, City College's acting vice president of student services. The student outreach effort turned around, dropping enrollment at the college. It returned a sense of mission that President Gallagher said had been lost before she was hired. She and her administrative team had no idea another crisis, the current pandemic, would further test their institution. As some area colleges lost up to 25% of their students, L.A. City College kept about 98% of its students. I I would say it's absolutely remarkable. 
That's Ryan Corner, vice chancellor at the Los Angeles Community College District, whose nine campuses, including LA City College, enroll more than 200,000 students. City College was able to focus on retaining student headcount and lost almost none of their students during the fall semester coming into this pandemic. The district's other eight colleges did not have similar student outreach programs. Corner says the other campuses are now offering students telephone and online help. Corner cautions that the pandemic's health, employment, and housing effects are deeper around other campuses where there's more poverty. So duplicating LA City's student outreach efforts may not have the same results. The state's community colleges enroll more than 2 million students, and enrollment's estimated to be down about 10 percent since the start of the pandemic. That's 200,000 Californians who've suspended their college education. You're losing the taxpayer base. That's University of Southern California education researcher Tatiana Melguizo. She says the state's recovery is tied to community colleges' recovery. You're losing the opportunity for these brilliant Latino and African-American kids to get a degree and pay, pay back to the state with amazing jobs, nursing jobs, STEM jobs. Freshman Alexis Thomas Hutchins says LA City College's counselors and professors have helped her imagine herself in an amazing job during what's otherwise been a very rough period in her life. I don't know where I would be. Maybe still struggling in life, trying to figure out who I am. Now she knows she wants to transfer to a university and go to law school. Researchers say community colleges' student outreach and support will be key as the institutions face another test. How many of the students they've lost can they bring back? Covering higher education, I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Finally, I can see the weekend peeking over my computer screen. So if you have no plans yet, we can help you figure things out. I'm KPCC's Leo Duran and Austin. We all need a break this weekend, and things may be starting to reopen up. Uh, although, you know, remember, still wear those masks in public, even if you've been vaccinated. This is my own personal rant because you got to keep your unvaxxed neighbors, like me, who's still in line, safe. Mm-hmm. So, with that disclaimer over, let's now share some things to do this weekend that are fun. All right, then first, what's something where I can celebrate? Well, tomorrow is Nowruz. This is the Persian New Year celebration. And then plenty of those celebrations are happening. One that's going to be both virtual and in person is through the Beverly Center tomorrow. The online part of it, there's going to be curated stories and images from throughout L.A. to ring in this new year. In person, there are going to be Iranian dancers throughout the mall itself giving performances, as well as staffers handing out free hyacinths and sprouts. I myself am going to keep an eye out for some delicious Persian food. Uh, I love a good cuckoo sabzi. And when you go to this thing, it's free. Ooh, that's my favorite number, free 99. Well, Leo, uh, <laughs> what about something for people looking for a date night? Because I might be a little past due myself. Okay, so for people who might be drived in out and still don't feel that good about going to a movie theater despite them being open, how about a pool in? Well, not actually going into a pool. But tonight and tomorrow, the JW Marriott in downtown LA hosts a dinner and a movie on its elevated pool deck. So tonight is the 2020 film, The Invisible Man, and tomorrow is Knives Out. You do have to bring some blankets and your own thick jackets, but the staff will provide appetizers, dinner, and unlimited popcorn. Plus, there's going to be a full bar on site. When you go, tickets start at 45 bucks a person. And then finally, Leo, museums are back open. So if I feel safe in venturing out to one, 
where can I go get some culture? All right, so this one is a big one. The artist Amy Sherald. If you don't know her name, you actually do know one of her most famous works, this glamorous portrait of Michelle Obama in a voluminous print dress against a light blue background. This is the one that got really famous. Well, Sherald has her first ever West Coast showcase starting tomorrow in the downtown LA gallery, Hauser and Worth. There is a standby line, so obviously you want to get there early to see the full range of her many different works. When you go, it is free. And hot tip, afterwards, get ice cream nearby from either Van Leeuwen or Salt and Straw. I remember when we mm. did that years ago uh, to try out their vegan ice creams, actually. It's good stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Now, there's a bunch more events to still go to online and in person safely. Find out what you can do this weekend by heading to our site, laist.com. That is L-A-I-S-T dot com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Leo has a cat. That's KPCC's Leo Duran. And Leo, before I let you go, man, I got to let people know that this is the last time we'll be hearing from you on the air because true. after eight years with Take Two, Leo is moving on to run the podcast. What a day. And it's an excellent thing for him. But a sad thing for us. So, Leo, I've had the pleasure of working with you for six of those eight years. And I'll say it now, if people couldn't tell already, you are a consummate producer and you have made this show better because of it. So we'll miss you. We wish you a lot of luck and we send you a whole lot of love. Well, Leo has tears in his eyes. (laughs) Maybe that should be my new Twitter (laughs) account. Thank you, Austin. And thank you all. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Leo. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events.